is McKinsey on Healthcare, a podcast series about visionaries, leaders, and problem solvers shaping the future of healthcare. My name is Erica Hutchins Coe. I'm a partner with McKinsey based out of our Atlanta office. Uh, I've been with our healthcare practice for a number of years, and along with my colleague, Kana, I co-lead our Center for Societal Benefit through Healthcare. What we're here to talk about is addressing healthcare needs early and holistically through integrated preventive care for children, adolescents, young adults, and families in ways that will be critical to really unlocking healthy lifespan opportunities. With that, I will hand it off to you, Kana. Thanks, Erica. I appreciate it. Um, so I am Kana Enomoto. I'm a senior expert in McKinsey's DC office and uh, very privileged to co-lead the Center for Societal Benefits together with Erica. I'm going to start off by asking each panelist to tell you a little bit about themselves. Um, so Johanna, would you mind uh, kicking us off? I'm Johanna Bergen and I lead the uh, Youth Move national team, uh, Move standing for Motivating Others Through Voices of Experience, uh, and that's what we do. We're a youth-run program, chapter-based organization uh, that looks to harness the voices of young people who have lived experience in our country's uh, child and youth-serving systems. Uh, We center our work in mental health um, and also work in child welfare, juvenile justice, and the education system. Um, And our goal is to uplift the power of young people's lived experience in creating systems change, particularly in creating systems that work better for our young people. Hi, I'm Andrew Dreyfus. I'm the CEO of Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Um, Thank you to McKinsey and our hosts for including me today. Um, I've worked on mental health from both in the public sector and in the private sector. Um, And our health plan um, thinks a lot about how do we care better for our members with both mental health and substance use disorder conditions and how to make that a a part of um, the broader healthcare movement. And hi, I'm Megan Jones-Bell. Thank you, McKinsey, Erica, Kana, and the rest of the organizers. Um, I am a clinical psychologist by training. Um, Lived experiences got me into that business in the first place and devoted the first chapter of my career to uh, designing and evaluating digital mental health interventions really across the age continuum, but with a large focus on youth. Um, I realized that nothing I developed in academia was actually getting into the hands of the people for whom I was designing it. So I decided to start a company, um, was one of the first coached mental health offerings since um, been absorbed into a number of other digital apps. Um, And now I'm the chief strategy and science officer of Headspace, which is the world's um, leading mindfulness app. Hi, my name is Victor Armstrong, and I am director of the North Carolina Division of Mental Health Developmental Disabilities and Substance Abuse Services. And I have been in this role for all of six months. Uh, so I came in right in the midst of the COVID pandemic. But I come to this work um, after spending about the last eight years working in the hospital systems. And I've worked for a large uh, hospital system in Charlotte, North Carolina, Atrium Health, where I was vice president of behavioral health. And of late, I'm really uh, focused a lot on some of the uh, disproportionate impact of um, health disparities on uh, communities of color. So this conversation today is very relevant to me. What role can public institutions play in addressing behavioral health needs and health-related basic needs in youth and families? I think that we need to think about the changes that we would make programmatically, uh, but also culturally and philosophically. I think that 
some of the things that we can do programmatically um, would involve how we can better integrate care. Uh, but I think where there need to be changes philosophically and culturally is that we may need to rethink what integration means. We've done uh, some work on uh, within our systems on integrating beha uh, behavioral health into primary care and primary care into behavioral health. I think where we still have challenges um, are how do we integrate behavioral health into a community setting. And I think that's where uh, public institutions can play a role because we can pilot, we can build programs that would allow us the opportunity um, to really build um, services that take into account not just the behavioral health needs and physical needs, but also how do we weave in the social determinants of health? How do we look at um, integrating behavioral health into the faith-based community, into uh, the YMCA, into communities where people live and congregate? So I think that's one of the things that we can focus on as we're answering this question, I think we also have to look at the lessons that we've learned um, from the COVID-19 pandemic. And we have seen uh, not only the disproportionate impact uh, on communities of color, but I think we've also seen in the way that we've tried to respond to that impact, at least in North Carolina, one of the things that we have learned is that we did not necessarily have a provider network that was equipped to speak to a lot of the needs of some of the historically marginalized communities and historically marginalized populations. What we've seen historically is a couple of things. I think in large part because we have not focused on these historically marginalized communities and putting resources in those communities, yet statistically, uh, we access behavioral health services at about half the rate of white people. Um, and we are less likely to initiate services. We're more likely to terminate services prematurely and I think there are things that we can look at to address those things. You know, one of the issues being, uh, where are the outpatient services located? Um, where are the resources located? If we don't have resources and programs in the communities where people can access them, um, they're less likely to engage in services in their communities and they're more likely to have the introduction into the behavioral health system being in the back of a police car or in an acute care emergency department uh, neither of which are going to be conducive to good outcomes and neither of which are going to build good relationships um, with mental health. Uh, I'd also say that I think one of the things that we can do um, programmatically also is looking at the use of advanced medical homes. Uh, I think advanced medical homes can play a critical role in ensuring that children and families are screened and treated for uh, behavioral, physical health and for social determinants of health. Um, so I think there are things that we can do with that, particularly building those resources into prepaid um, health plans. Um, and I think also there are things that we need to do differently around kids with uh, complex needs. I think, again, if we're looking at health disparity and if we're looking at um, uh, equal access for all, um, one of the things that troubles me is that when we look at um, youth in this country, um, African-American kids make up about 17% of the youth in this country, but about 40% of the kids in the juvenile justice system uh, and about 45% of the kids in the foster care system. So we need to build in uh, ways of reaching those kids earlier uh, before they get uh, uh, pushed into the system. If I had to point to um, a couple of things that we can do and some things that we're looking at in North Carolina, um, one of them is we've been doing a, what we call a fostering health initiative, and it's a partnership between primary care, 
Department of Social Services and Behavioral Health, where kids um, who are entering the foster care system are assigned the health home. And it requires doing a series of health screenings uh, within the first 30 days. No health first aid is something that we know works. Um, and there are kits for how we can bring that into the school system. So that's another thing we're looking at. And then finally, some of the consultation services that we're providing for our pediatricians to be able to have psychologists and psychiatrists that can consult with them. Um, and then also some of the work we're doing around our behavioral health and juvenile justice partnerships throughout the state. And Andrew, in Massachusetts, you all have done some really inspiring actions recently in terms of child psychiatrist access and other support for children. Do you want to share a few comments on how you have uh, thought about that important imperative that Victor teed up? Sure. Um, it's interesting because there's a lot of parallels between some of the initiatives that Victor is trying to do on the public side that we're trying to do on the private side. So I'll just give you a little context that about a decade ago, we made a decision at Blue Cross Blue Shield in Massachusetts to try to kind of take mental health and substance use disorder treatment kind of out of the shadows and put it in the mainstream of care. The first thing we did is we um, stopped doing what many health plans still do, which is they outsource or carve out mental health services to private companies. Uh, we carved it in, took it in, hired a number of uh, mental health clinicians from psychiatrists to social workers to work alongside our other physicians and nurses inside the company to make sure that care for our members was as integrated as possible. Um, next thing we did is we kind of looked at the benefits we were offering. And so um, first what we did is we made sure that all the clinicians who accepted our value-based payment model, our global payment model included behavioral or mental health in that. And what we saw immediately was when they started to accept some financial and clinical risk for the care they were offering, they started to integrate social workers and psychologists right into the primary care setting. And that was a really important advance. We then, rather than constructing a limited network of mental health clinicians, we opened it up to basically any willing mental health clinician in the state. And so we have a very, very broad network. And then, you know, we started hearing complaints about administrative um, barriers. And so we eliminated most of those partly so because many of our mental health clinicians are solo practitioners or in a small practice without much administrative support. We wanted to try to kind of radically simplify their experience of working with a health plan. So the only paperwork they really had to provide is to send us a bill. These changes resulted in adding about 2000 clinicians to our network over the past few years. And we've seen a really significant uptake in mental health services by our members. We saw over 2018, a 43% increase in the care our members were seeking. And that did increase spending, but we also saw a 40% reduction in spending outside of the network. And that seemed to be another positive development. At the same time, we were working on the addiction side too. We dropped co-pays for things like methadone and Narcan, and we eliminated prior authorization for Suboxone treatment. We really believe that reducing the barriers to access to care for both mental health and substance use disorder is not just the right thing to do, but it actually may reduce overall medical spending. But some, despite some of the positive things we've done, it wasn't enough and we knew there were still gaps in the system. So about a year ago, and this is pre-COVID, I assembled our mental health team and other um, reimbursement leaders in the company said, what more can we do? And one of the big gaps we knew was that a lot of kids in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts weren't getting access to child psychiatry services, or at least not access to care that would be paid for by insurance. And many child psychiatrists 
were simply only accepting private pay uh, for their services. Um, and so what we did is we dramatically increased, and this is a recent development, the, the fees that we're paying for child psychiatry services to again, bring that back into the mainstream and not require families who are in much distress if they're needing to consult the psychiatrist have to um, hunt for a solution. Um, we started as some others have done during the COVID epidemic to pay for uh, telemedicine visits uh, for mental health at the same rate that we paid for in-office visits. And we've announced that we're gonna continue that uh, indefinitely for the future. And not just for telemedicine visits, but also for telephonic visits. We're investing in a new company called Brightline that I hope you'll hear a lot about that is opening offices, both in the San Francisco area and in the Boston area uh, to provide coordinated integrated services to families um, uh, with mental health problems. Uh, we expanded access to a program called Learn to Live, um, which some of you may know is a, a cognitive behavioral therapy oriented uh, online program for mild anxiety, depression, substance use. And uh, we're also finally investing very heavily in something called the collaborative care model, which I think is similar to what Victor was talking about, where we pay higher fees to primary care practices that integrate uh, mental health services into the practice, often with a psychiatrist uh, supervising it. Too often, someone might get screened for a mental health uh, diagnosis in a primary care office, and then maybe they're handed a piece of paper with a scrawled number for a social worker. Very different than walking down the hall and saying, you can make an appointment right now to see the social worker or the psychologist in our practice. And so, you know, some people asked them, how can we afford to do this, to expand so much services to people with mental health and substance use? I think our response is we can't afford not to do it. Um, that uh, given the need uh, and given how widespread mental health and substance use is, we wanted to be a plan that responded to the needs of our members and our employer customers who are asking us to provide better mental health care for their employees. Great. Um, I would turn to the other panelists to see if it uh, Megan or Johanna, if either of you all have any reactions to what both Andrew and Victor have raised, particularly about access to care, especially around um, diverse and complex groups. Yeah, I love that both um, Victor and Andrew brought up access and so quickly in their discussions. Uh, I, we live in a world where mental health and substance misuse challenges carry still quite a bit of stigma and discrimination. And uh, those are the invisible barriers uh, for accessing care. Uh, on top of some that we just spoke about in terms of being able to access telehealth or being able to uh, know how to navigate the system or identify those services. Um, I think we hear uh, from young people in my own experience as well, the ideal would be, just as you said, Victor, to bring the services to where we already are. So instead of um, accessing behavioral health care being this journey to a foreign land where you've never been before, um, it, rather making it a system that supports us in the community, I think that would support what we're hearing from youth. And I think what has been a barrier is that many of the technologies that we have available for behavioral health have not been designed specifically for youth. Um, they've been kind of adapted down for children and younger people, which is not really the appropriate way of designing an intervention. Um, and then, you know, they've also not been designed for diverse populations. We, over recent months, have seen a rise um, in the number of meditation apps designed by and for people of color 
Um, I think in if you're targeting populations who don't feel seen by the traditional healthcare system, they don't trust it, they don't see themselves reflected in it, um, that particularly when we're trying to close that divide with technology, um, we really need to be designing um, those interventions uh, with those people in mind. To me, that is a, a, an extremely important point. And I think that's in part where we need to shift the way that we think about things culturally and philosophically. Even with technology, we think about the programmatic piece of it. Let's create technology, make technology more accessible to uh, underserved communities, and we will automatically uh, get them to utilize the resource. Uh, but early data shows that we still have that gap, um, still in historically marginalized populations utilizing services. And we often hear that people of color won't access services or that black men in particular don't want therapy. You know, for a lot of people of color, they'll go to their faith-based organizations first because that's where things are palatable to them. And if you have treatment modalities uh, that are not really culturally sensitive, you're not going to get people of color engaged. And I think that's part of the reason that it makes so much more sense too to actually take the resources into the community because the more that you do things on their turf, you're more likely to have, in addition to evidence-based and evidence-informed practices, you're going to have community-informed practices. You raise an important point. I mean, we need to get services to where people are. Um, but we also need to have a sufficient workforce. And Andrew's trying to get at that by bringing more people in network. Um, but even at that, I imagine there are still challenges. You've know, you got 2,000 more providers in network, but um, do we have enough? And do we have enough workforce that uh, reflects the diversity of the folks that we're trying to serve or has the specialized expertise? I would say a couple of things. First of all, you're right. We need more specialized services and we need to dramatically diversify the clinicians who are serving the public. Um, you know, one of the things we looked at in the child psychiatry problem, I mean, there are 400 child psychiatrists in Massachusetts, and I think we may have one of the highest, if not the highest per capita number of child psychiatrists in the country. And we had 140 of them in our network. Hopefully um, many more will join now. But we're not going to ever produce enough child psychiatrists uh, to treat the kids and adolescents who need help. So we're probably going to have to rely on um, other forms of uh, clinicians, psychologists, social workers, mental health counselors. We're going to have to help pediatricians do more. We, um, with others, developed a program in our Commonwealth where pediatricians can essentially call a line and get a child psychiatrist or child psychologist on the phone for a consult. Um, so they can handle some of the more moderate cases in their own office. We're going to have to come up with both payment models and delivery mechanisms that better serve kids. And on the issue of diversity, we just have to uh, continue to expand uh, the number and kind of people who are serving uh, the public because we just have insufficient diversity. We know that in many cases, um, people want to talk with someone who looks and sounds like them and has their same background and there are cultural barriers, language barriers, and other barriers that persist in our healthcare system. I would add to that. I look at it as kind of what's the long-term approach and what's the short-term approach. In the long-term, we do need to be growing um, a more diverse workforce. On the short-term, I think one of the things that we have to do is we have to look more also at the value of using non-traditional uh, collaboration. So how do we collaborate with 
uh, the faith-based community because the family is going to go to them anyway. And how do we utilize more lived experience? I know here in North Carolina, we have something like 4,500 uh, certified peer support specialists and about 1,500 of them are employed. So that's a workforce that's out there that we need to figure out a better way of utilizing them and creating a way to pay them because they bring a value to a treatment team. And then the final thing I'll say is we're now looking at, as we are awarding contracts, um, how do we look differently at that? And how do we make sure that before we award a contract or an RFP or an RFA, that we've done our due diligence to try to make sure we're interviewing uh, providers of color? Because what we were hearing anecdotally was that part of the reason we don't have more providers of color in the network is because well, we couldn't find them or um, they didn't uh, meet the criteria. Uh, so we're looking now at, even if that's the case, how do we prepare them better? How do we groom them educate them on how to respond to RFPs and RFAs so that when we're awarding contracts to provider organizations, we can make sure that we're utilizing historically underutilized businesses in our network. I, I wanted to build on Victor's point about peer support because I think if you look at the evidence on global mental health, there's very encouraging results um, showing that peer support combined with you know, an evidence-based intervention, ideally delivered over text message um, so that you're not using data plans that don't exist, um, can really be effective, particularly for uh, lower acuity conditions um, or better yet, intervening upstream. I wanted to jump in here um, about peer support and particularly about the emerging youth peer support workforce. Um, for me to be a part of supporting the development, our contribution to a new service or support within the system, it's been this beautiful um, connectivity of the work that we do as an organization to include youth voice in systems change um, and our own lived experiences. I was living a journey that included multiple diagnoses, and I could have let anxiety and depression and mania become my life, and instead, I was afforded a path that allowed it to fuel my passion, and now I get to do this work every day, and we're seeing um, so many exciting things happen when young people um, are able to see that they could have a future in a helping field. Um, and oftentimes, young people, particularly in our public systems, aren't given a pathway to show people like them doing work in the mental health field. And so the youth peer workforce is really just creating this entirely new pathway. Um, and at the same time, while we're uh, potentially making a very large contribution to a workforce shortage, we're also providing this hope model for young people who may be uh, sort of steered away from accessing services and supports. When instead of a clinician providing you a very formal medical model construct things, you have someone who looks and talks like you, maybe at a coffee shop or a basketball court, encouraging you to say, hey, stick with this. Like this team's got your back. Uh, that's just a far more welcoming invitation for young people. Um, and I think uh, back to the point about access earlier, uh, particularly youth to youth peer support can be that invitation, like come along and access support with me. There's a positive way out of this journey is just incredibly powerful. Thanks, Joanna. So what I was just going to add is that um, we've actually had some interesting developments in this in the treatment of substance use disorder. One is there's been the emergence of recovery coaches 
which are another form of peer support, but they're not licensed clinicians, but we've started a program where we're paying for reimbursing for recovery coaches as part of a team and hoping that they may become a new kind of category of uh, licensed professionals that we can use and provide that important peer support. And as Victor said, it's not just how you look, but it's like, have you been there? And with the experience I have, the other thing we did um, is we have tried to reach in a little earlier and we've been funding something called the drug story theater, which is kind of um, older adolescents um, talking through theater with middle school students about their experience with addiction and mental health problems. And I visited some of these programs and the kids are just wrapped. That's great. I love the rich and uh, lively dialogue, particularly around peer support, given all the potential there. I'm curious, just from this group's reaction, thinking about the path forward here, what do you think needs to happen for um, something as important as peer support to be able to scale? One of the reasons we invested in a demonstration project is to, in fact, produce some evidence that will help persuade people, you know, you can watch a kind of similar parallel work that's been going on in the area of autism treatment with applied behavioral analysis, where that was a something that was really mostly dealt with in the education system. A new intervention came along. You had people who knew how to do it. They weren't licensed therapists. A lot of parents were getting legislation filed in different states requiring health plans like ours to cover it. And you had to almost create a new kind of profession, a new kind of category of a licensed professional in order for us to be able to pay it under our kind of laws and contracts. We're part of an organization called RISE Massachusetts and it's spelled R-I-Z-E for zero stigma and zero deaths, but really trying to see what we can do to reduce stigma because until we do that, not everyone's going to be as brave as Johanna was in dealing with her illness and then talking about it afterwards. We all have mental health uh, diagnoses in our families. Almost all of us have substance use disorder in our families. We have to start talking more openly about it so it becomes part of the mainstream. And again, as I said at the beginning, take it out of the shadows. Thank you. Megan, I wanted to turn to you with one question too, but building on this theme of access and the role that Digital Beaver Health may have, the importance of access to evidence-based services in particular, would love to hear your perspective on what might need to happen to increase access to evidence-based services. I love, Erica, the qualification of evidence-based services because that's something I spend a lot of time thinking about um, is you know, the opportunity that we have with digital behavioral health um, technology is to close that access gap. Um, I think in part that is a bit conditional on the digital divide being adequately addressed, um, which is why I think while that's a work in progress, um, making sure that we're, you know, developing the simplest technology that is the most ubiquitous as a delivery mechanism um, so that we can get around those cost barriers. Um, but I think this, um, as healthcare shifts to be more values-based, as there are incentives for being able to demonstrate um, and be held accountable for outcomes. You know, my hope is that that creates pressure around the digital ecosystem that drives the developers of these technologies to really evaluate um, with real world evidence you know, because it's quite easy to collect um, and analyze this data in real time. It's kind of one of the unique advantages of uh, digital health intervention. Um, but I think that there need to be the right pressures and incentives around this ecosystem to really 
ensure that it is, you know, not only informed by evidence, but what they're actually doing um, is held accountable to outcomes. I think, you know, particularly in youth mental health, the, this is a way that we can leverage technology for good, um, whether we like it or not. Social media, technology, screen time is going to be here to stay. And while we can try to teach digital media literacy in schools, we also need to start working with the technology industry at large to ensure that we are kind of creating safe spaces online for designing um, and embedding tools within these digital ecosystems or social media sites that give people opportunities to create healthy social norms. We've done a project like that with Snap where we integrated pieces of Headspace into a mini that was designed to let friends share emotional support, cheer each other on, um, meditate together. Particularly for children, we need to design kids-focused uh, digital behavioral health tools that use the technology as a jumping off point for in-person interaction. Um, I'm working with a company right now um, called OK Play, where it's really about co-play. It's teaching parents techniques that they can go take into play when they are feeling burned out from being on a screen or, you know, a, a large part of child psychology is teaching parents the skills that they can bring into their interactions with children. This has been such a rich back and forth. Um, Kana and I thought we'd take a shot just summarizing some of the great points that have come out of this. Kana, I'll hand it to you. So I appreciate the group talking about how we really need to focus on addressing the needs of diverse populations, not only uh, where they are, but what they need and um, who they're looking to for help. Uh, we want to build the workforce, uh, including engaging peers and also reimbursing our providers at parity or in a way that adequately um, uh, reimburses for the value that they're bringing to our system. Uh, we need to build the science and make sure we're promoting evidence-based practices, aligning our incentives, combating stigma, increasing literacy, and most of all, I think, Johanna, uh, uh, you said very nicely, we need to share hope. So I think this has been a fantastic conversation. We thank all of our panelists. Thanks, as always, to our listeners for tuning in. To learn more about McKinsey's work in healthcare, please visit mckinsey.com.